don't we serve such an amazing God? Amen. He's great. He's greatly to be praised. You have your Bible. Want to stand with me? Amen. We're going to continue a study that we started before August reset. Uh, I taught five consecutive lessons out of the book of Ruth, and this is the sixth one. And uh, this morning, I'm going to do my best to bring everybody up to speed on where we are. I know it's been a little over a month, month and a half since we studied this. So I'll take that into account, kind of go back to the beginning. But let me give you today's text, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she had risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field even until evening, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I'm asking, Lord, in the next few moments, you'd allow the word of God just to speak into our hearts, challenge us, Lord. Help us to grow closer to you, grow more into the person that you've called us to be, each and every individual, Lord, and the church, Lord, that you've ordained should be in Lake City, Arkansas. I'm asking God you'd help us to rise up and meet that challenge in the word of God today. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. Now, it's been several weeks since we studied the story of Ruth, so I'm going to go back and uh, take a few moments and refresh your memory on where we are in the story. The story of Ruth starts not with Ruth. It starts with a Hebrew husband and wife named Elimelech and Naomi. And when hard times come on the land of the Israelites in Bethlehem, where Limelech and Naomi live, there there comes a famine there, and it settles on the land, and and the prospects don't look very good. It's it's a discouraging time, amen. There's not enough provision. There's not enough food. It doesn't it doesn't look like things are going to be well. But but word comes that over in Moab, just a a few <coughs> a few miles away, there's there's plenty. It's all good, and so. Elimelech decides to leave the promised land because he heard things were better in Moab. Amen. And uh, we know that we talked about how poor of a decision that was, how that God had brought those people, the Israelites, into that promised land. And he had promised them that he would sustain them, that he would care for them, and that he would take care of them. But at the first sign of hardship and trouble, at the first sign of a famine, all Elimelech can think is, I need to run somewhere else for shelter. I need to go somewhere else for food for my family. I need to go somewhere else to get the things that I need to get by. And it, it demonstrates an absolute lack of faith and trust in the God that has established them, the one that has promised to watch over them. And so when he goes to Moab, he's saying that he doesn't really have any faith in God's promise, that God's going to take care of them, that God's going to watch over them. And so he displayed that lack of faith by taking his family and moving to Moab. Now, it was a costly journey for Elimelech. Elimelech died 
in Moab. And his two sons married Moabite women, and then they too died in Moab. And at that point in the story, Naomi, in her grief and brokenness, decides that it's time for her finally to go back to Bethlehem, to leave uh, Moab and go back home. And so she sets out on a journey home. And when she sets out to go home, her two daughters-in-law, who are now widows, they, they go with her. They're going to journey with her. They're going to take care of their mother-in-law, this, this lady that is broken and destitute. And they're going to they're gonna go with her and help provide for her. And, and, and they don't want to be parted from her. But Naomi decides it would be better for her if her daughters-in-law did not go with her. You see, when Naomi gets to Bethlehem, Naomi's going to come to Bethlehem broken. She's not going to have any resources. She's not going to have any finances. She's going to have to depend on the good kindness of others in order to survive. That's the only way that she's going to get sustenance. And so in her mind, it's easier to get charity if there's just one. Amen? It's going to be a little more difficult if she has her daughters-in-law with her. And so as they set out on the journey, Naomi decides that uh, she needs to discourage her daughters-in-law from following her. So she turns to them and she tells them, you need to go back to your mother's house. Amen. You need to go back home to your kindred. You need to go back to the land that, that, that has nurtured you and raised you. But they refuse. They, together they say, we're going to go wherever you go. We're with you in this journey. So just a little while later, she tries again. But this time, she takes a more uh, powerful approach, if you will. She begins to tell them how the law of God is going to impact them when they come into Bethlehem. Amen. These ladies are Moabites. They are, they are widows of a Hebrew man. And uh, the law of Moses declares that if a man dies without leaving a son, which is the case here, that the widow is forbidden to marry outside the family of the man. Okay, so she can't remarry, neither one of these daughters-in-law can remarry in, in Bethlehem unless there is a, uh, a, a, a kinsman, there is a family member. And so, uh, the, but the problem with Naomi is there is no brother, there is no kinsman, there is no one to step up and take that place, and, and, and there is nobody to fulfill that vow. The idea behind that vow is that uh, the husband's brother would take uh, her as his wife, and, and, and when their first child came, that child would be counted for the lineage of the dead brother, and so that his heritage would continue and his inheritance would continue, and, and the blessing of God on that family line would be preserved. It was about preserving the lineage. But according to the law, if Ruth and Orpah go back to Bethlehem with Naomi, their prospects of ever marrying again are very slim. First of all, Naomi had no other sons. Amen. There's, there's nobody else. Secondly, she believes that she's too old to remarry. And beyond that, she tells her daughters-in-law, even if I did go back to Bethlehem and I got married, and if immediately I had children, by the time they got old enough to marry you, you'd be old maids yourself. Amen. And so that discouragement, she, she does her best to convince him it would be utterly foolish for them to return with her 
that would be utterly foolish, that they don't have any hope in Bethlehem. There's no chance that they're going to have a life that's worth anything in Bethlehem. If they go with her, they're never going to be able to marry again. But if they stay in Moab, see, if they stay in Moab, they're not bound by the law of God. If they stay in Moab, they can they can marry again. If they stay in Moab, they can have a, a fruitful life. If they stay in Moab, they can have uh, uh, children and all those things that a young lady wants. And so that argument is strong enough that it convinces Orpah to turn around and go back to Moab. But Naomi, uh, Ruth, clings to Naomi and says, I won't leave. And then she tries one final time to discourage Ruth, and Ruth refuses to go. And her words at that point in the story are some of the most poetic in all of Scripture. You've heard it. You hear it at weddings. You hear it at special occasions. Ruth said to Naomi, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. And where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And with those strong words, Ruth convinces Naomi to allow her to continue on the journey with her. And so they together return to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Naomi immediately sees the evidence of the blessings of the Lord in Bethlehem. It's, it quickly becomes obvious that the decision that was made those many years ago to leave because of famine and to leave because of trial and trouble, that that decision has not been a good decision. Amen. The Hebrews have not been broken by the family and by the famine. Instead, they've been blessed. Amen. The, the hard time didn't destroy them. It strengthened them and it built them up. Uh, and everyone where she looks, she sees the blessings of God and, and the goodness of God. And that, be, that causes her to bemoan the fact that she left Bethlehem. She says, I went out full. When I went, I had good things. When I went, I had plenty. When I went, my cup was running over. But I've come back empty, broken, and destitute. And so that's the story of how Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem, and from there we turn the page to the very first, Ruth's very first full day in Bethlehem. And the situation is that Naomi and Beth and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem, but Naomi is poor, she's destitute, she doesn't have any income, she doesn't have any resources, she doesn't have a way to provide for herself, and so uh, without any resources, there's, there's no hope. And so Ruth volunteers to go to work in the fields. Ruth says, I, I'll go and I'll, I'll go work the barley harvest. I'll be a gleaner among the gleaners and I'll, I'll, I'll work there and I'll see if I can pick up enough grain by the charity of a farmer to, to have us food to eat this evening and maybe to sustain us through the w days and the weeks that are to come. So Ruth volunteers to go work, amen. She volunteers to go uh, do something about it. She's not content just to sit back and wait on the charity of others, amen. She volunteers to get out and go do something about her situation. So Ruth goes to the field, and, and the Scripture said she just so happened to pick a field that belonged to Boaz. Don't you love how... 
just so happened, amen, works in the will of God and the plan of God, how he uses happenstance to bring about his perfect plan and his perfect will. And so she happens to choose a field that's owned by Boaz. And the, and the interesting thing about Boaz is he's a near kinsman to her dead husband. She doesn't know that yet. He may not realize that yet. But there is a familial connection there that can fulfill the law of God. That's the heart of this story. And so to make an already lengthy story a little shorter so I can get to the text, when, when Boaz comes out to the field that morning to check on his workers, Ruth catches his eye immediately. He goes to the straw boss and says, and it's interesting the question he asks. He doesn't say, who is she? He says, Whose is she? Who she belong to? Uh, that that young lady out there, she's got my eye. I want to know who's laid claim to her, who she belongs to. And the answer, of course, is that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's the widow from Moab, the Moabite girl, the one that has taken care of her mother-in-law. And so he immediately is moved for compa with compassion for Ruth, and he goes to Ruth, and he tells her, said, these are my handmaidens around you. This is my field you're working in. And he said, from now on, when you go to the field to work, you seek out my handmaids, and you join yourself to my handmaids. And wherever they reap, that's where you're going to reap too. And wherever they go, that's where you need to go too. Because the, the, the handmaids of Boaz are always going to be reaping in Boaz's field. And so Boaz said, if you'll stay in my field, if you'll stay in under my protection, I'm going to extend my hand of protection over you. He said, I've instructed the young men that are in my employ not to harass you, not to bother you. I've asked the people that are that are under my authority to allow you to drink the water that's brought to the field for the workers. You see, that's an unusual situation. The, the water that's brought to the field is for the people who are being paid to labor, but Ruth isn't a paid laborer. She's just a, she's out for a, a handout. It's charity on Ruth's part. Amen. But Boaz gives her a special pass that she can come and drink water with his workers. And so he creates this opportunity for her. If you'll stay in my field, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to provide you water while you work. I'm going to make sure you're not thirsty. In response, Ruth bowed herself to the ground. And she said to him, why have I found grace in your eyes, seeing I'm just a stranger? Matter of fact, she said, I'm not like any of the other girls. Which is exactly why she caught Boaz's eye in the first place. Amen. She's not like the rest of them. There's something special about this young lady. But Boaz probably surprises her with his answer. He says, I've heard how that you took care of your mother-in-law. I heard how that you've, you've taken pains to come with Naomi to Bethlehem and how that you've given up all hope of the future. I heard about your dilemma and I, your kindness and your generosity towards your mother-in-law is commendable. And Boaz says, this is God's way of repaying you. This is God's way of blessing you for the kindness you've shown Naomi. When you recognize that somebody's done something, amen, that, that you think, man, God, God's going to bless them for it, you may very well be standing in the place that Boaz was where God's saying, I want to use you to bless them for it. 
Amen. I want to use you to flow because all through this story, we see the, in the characters that, that God uses becoming the avenues through which the blessings of God flow. It's not just that they see a need and they recognize a need, but it's that they become the way the need is met. met need is met. And so what Boaz tells Ruth is you may not realize it yet, but your actions have brought you under the protective wings of God. The, the Almighty is now protecting you, and he's just simply you using me to do that. Amen. That pretty much brings us to our text. And so in verse 14 of chapter 2, all of this has gone on in Ruth's first morning in the field. And while it's taken us five weeks to get this far, you got to understand the day is barely spent. It's not over with. This is the morning check-in. This is Boaz coming around at the very beginning of the work day and checking on the field and seeing Ruth and, and being enticed and having the conversation, making the promises. All that happens at the beginning of the day. Amen. But now, in verse 14, the scene shifts to noontime. And at noontime, Boaz said to her, Boaz said unto her at mealtime, Come thou hither and eat of, eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. Now, one of the things that we've said about this story from the very beginning is that the role of Boaz is typical of the role of Jesus Christ. We see that reflection in the way that he makes Ruth the Moabitess, the one that, that wasn't worthy to become his bride, and not only become his bride, but by virtue of her becoming his bride, she's entered into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a, it's a significant event that takes place whenever uh, Boaz takes Ruth, and he, he loves her, and he redeems her, and, and he makes her his, and, and he makes her his bride. And the love story that plays out between Ruth and, and Boaz is uh, paralleled with the story of Jesus Christ and his own bride, the church, and how that he came to those people who were not a people. Amen. Ruth's not an Israelite. She's not a Hebrew. He came to those people who were not a people and made them his people. Amen. Ruth doesn't have any claim. She doesn't have any standing. She doesn't have any position in that society. She's just an outsider, and that's all she's ever going to be. But Boaz loves her, and he makes her his. He makes her one of them. He redeems her and brings her into the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and puts her in the birthright and the birth line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen. That's the story. That's the parallel between Jesus and the church. Amen. We see Jesus coming and, and, and those that are not a people, he makes his people and he redeems them and he purchases them out of their slavery and he, he makes them his own. Amen. And he gives them all that they need. Uh, amen. And he makes them his bride. Amen. Aren't you so thankful for that? And so we see that parallel come into play here at the beginning of today's passage. And if you were judging this as a literary work and looking back you might say well you know they wrote this chapter to foreshadow the chapters that were to come the problem is the chapters that were to come hadn't been written yet God put this in the word to foreshadow you see beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and his ministry in the life of Boaz and his interactions with Ruth but you got to understand this story was put on paper a long time before Jesus ever came this is divine divine design amen this is divine inspiration 
And so after the initial exchange with Ruth, after she's, she's been told that stay in my field and, and labor in my field and you can drink from the water that my workers drink from, and after she's toiled all morning long, you know, there's some work in this on Ruth's part. Amen. Ruth's had to stay in the field. She's worked under the hot sun. She's, she's put herself out there. She's stayed with it. She's doing the best to make the best of the situation she finds. Sometimes you don't find yourself in a comfortable situation. Sometimes you find yourself in places that are difficult, that are trying. Amen. And you say, Lord, where are you at? Where's the blessing at? The blessing's coming. You just got to stay in the field. Amen. You just got to stay with it because before it's over with, he's going to open up the fountains of heaven and he's going to pour out the blessing. And so she labors in the field all morning long. And when the time comes for the noon break, for lunchtime, Boaz approaches her again. Now, what should happen here is that Boaz's servant should go eat a meal that has been prepared for them and brought to the field, and there's a table set that is for just for the paid labor. It's just for those that are in the employ of Boaz, and they should be the only ones partaking of that food, just like they were supposed to have been the only ones drinking the water that was brought to the field. Uh, but that food is what the, where this story starts. The, the gleaners and the folks who are working for their ourselves that are that are getting charity out of this they're not supposed to be able to go and eat at that table when the workers come out of the field and they go to that table ruth stays apart she stays separate because that's not a place where she's supposed to be she's 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 not allowed to go and partake of that but boaz comes to her and he tells her i want you to come and join me at my table amen you see here's the problem ruth and naomi are are destitute they don't have any money and it's very likely that ruth hasn't brought any lunch to the field with her it's very likely that she's going to sit under whatever shade she can find for the for the noon break and and she's just going to look forward to when she finally gets home with the grain that she's picking up today and that's where she's going to get her food for the day but boaz goes out to her and he, remar- he extends to her a remarkable invitation. Come. Come and dine. Sounds just like the words of Jesus. Come and dine at my table. That's significant in the culture of the Middle East because meals were seen as an expression of hospitality. And Boaz's invitation to come to his table, eat with his hired help, is a significant move of hospitality towards Ruth. It's a move of bringing her into that inner circle. Already he said, stay in my field. Already he said, stay close to my handmaids. But now he's saying, come and eat at my table. And so Ruth comes to sit at the table and eat the bread and the vinegar that's been provided for the workers in the field. And Boaz comes and sits at the same table in close enough proximity that he can hand her parched grain to eat. Now, this is remarkable on several fronts. First of all, it probably wasn't expected that the owner of the field would eat with his laborers. Amen? 
it wasn't expected that he would sit down at the field at the table with the rest of them and eat with them. So the very fact that Boaz comes to the table and sits with his workers that day is probably a remarkable thing. They're probably already wondering what in the world's going on. Why is a boss eating with us? Amen. What's he doing down here? Why is he sitting at the table with us? But what happens next probably caught everybody by surprise. You see, there's a there's a there's the grain of the food, the bread and the vinegar that is for the workers and the field. But Boaz served Ruth what the scripture called roasted grain, roasted corn to go with her bread and vinegar. So here's the picture. The laborers that Boaz has hired that he's brought to the field, they eat the bread that he gives them. That bread is the old, dark, crusty, uh, hard bread of that day. And so they provide those workers with a, a bowl of a soup. It's The scripture calls it a vinegar. But they, they dip the bread. Anybody ever go to Panera Bread and get a bowl of soup? And they give you one of those real hard loaves. And you and really, before you can eat that little baguette, you got to dip it in that soup. And that's what's going on here. That's what they, they you've heard the term sopping the bread. That's exactly what's going on. So Ruth's been invited to join them at their table, and she's going to sop her bread in the vinegar just like everybody else. But there's another practice that takes place at the same time. The best heads of barley were set aside. The ones that were not too ripe and not too green, those that were just perfect. The the, the straw boss, when he's collecting the harvest, he, he picks the very best. And the very best, he binds it together, ties them into small bundles, and then he builds a fire on the edge of the field, and he roasts that freshly picked barley over the fire. And that was considered to be a delicacy. It was considered to be a very special treat and it was reserved for those of high station. It wasn't for the everyday paid labor. It was for those that were the, the leaders and the authority and the straw bosses and the and the, 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 the master himself. That's the kind of food that they're going to eat while everybody else eats that hard bread that's dipped in the vinegar. So not everybody gets to taste of this special treat. But Boaz does the unthinkable. When that special delicacy is delivered to him, the straw boss gets done roasting it, and he gets it all together, and he brings it to Boaz because that's where it's supposed to go. This is specially prepared for him. Boaz gives of that grain to Ruth. And all of a sudden, everybody realizes Ruth's station in life has shifted. First, she was just an outsider. She's just a poor girl that the boss had mercy on. But now it's become obvious that she's more than that. Boaz has given her the very best that he has. He, he's going beyond generosity. He's going beyond kindness. There's a personal kind of feeling to what's happening here. And it, it wouldn't be that hard to imagine the boss inviting the poor girl to come and eat at the table, especially after the way she's taking care of her mother-in-law. But it's a stretch to think that Boaz would sit at the same table with her and that he would feed her from the special stuff that was prepared for him. But not only did he feed her, he gave her more than she could eat. He filled her up, and then there was leftovers when she got done. And there was food that she could bundle up and take back to Naomi. And this is where we see the type of Christ. Boaz says, come and dine at my table. And then he gives her the best. He gives her the good stuff. He gives her the stuff that's reserved. And then he gives her more of that than she can eat. 
He gives her more of that than she can even consume until, until she's, there's leftovers. See, eating until you're satisfied or more than satisfied is used in the, sim- in the Bible as a symbol of God's generosity. He doesn't just give you enough to get by. Amen. David said he fills my cup until it's overflowing. He, he doesn't just, when you come to his table, he doesn't just make sure you don't leave hungry. When you come to his table, amen, when you look to him for help, uh, what you discover is uh, that he always provides more than enough. He always gives you more than you need. He's always over and abundantly more than you could ever ask for. And when Ruth comes and sits at Boaz's table, she has no idea what she's about to get because what he's about to give to her is more than she can hold. It's more than she can contain. That's the type of Jesus Christ. And we see that parallel played out in the story. God is providing for Ruth through Boaz, who interestingly enough will become her redeemer before the story is over with. So when you've tried everything and nothing satisfies, the place to go is to Jesus because he does more than satisfy. He overflows. He'll always be more than enough. That's the lesson to learn from Boaz's table. He will always provide more than you need. Amen. The 15th verse said, And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and lead them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So the scene ends. This first day is going to end with a final exchange between Boaz and his workers. And as Ruth is getting ready to return to the gleaning, she's getting ready to go back to the field. Amen. He gives his harvesters uh, one final command. He tells them to let Ruth move up and work with the ones that are binding the sheaves, put her in among the sheaves. In fact, they, they, he tells them not just to let her work where, where gleaners are not allowed to work, but he also tells them they must let some grain fall to the ground intentionally. They, they, need to, they need to pull some of the stalks out of the bundles when they're binding them and lay them on the ground, leave them there for Ruth to pick up. And so uh, there's the, this provision, this, this, this blessing that he's making for Ruth. The law gives gleaners the right to come to the field and to reap after the harvesters, the harvesters, but that's the point. They can only come after the harvesters. They, they can only pick up what the harvesters leave behind. After the harvesters done with the row, then they can work that row. But Boaz extends this mercy. He goes beyond the legal right of a gleaner, and he says, let Ruth get right in there amongst you guys. Because the law was, when you go to bundle up the sheaves, if any falls to the ground, you're not supposed to pick it back up again. Now, in, in reality, it's very possible that when it would fall to the ground, they just quickly put it back in the sheath. But now he's put Ruth right in the middle of them. And so what falls to the ground, Ruth can pick up. And then besides that, that's blessing enough. That's going to be more than she can contain. But besides that, he says, whenever you're doing it, I want you just to let some fall on purpose. 
I want you to lay some little bundles, handfuls on purpose down there on the ground. Ruth doesn't even need to cut the grain anymore. She doesn't even need to pull the heads anymore. The harvesters are working before her, and they're cutting the grain, and they're laying it out there for her to pick up. Uh, and, and so she's working among the folks who are making the sheaves, who make the bundles and, and tie them together, and she's picking up these handfuls of grain. Those handfuls are God's blessing. That's, that's what he's putting in her path. Do she's, she's, you understand she's still under the hot sun? She's still in the field laboring. Never, nowhere in this story did we get Ruth dismissed from the field and say, go home, God's going to take care of you. She's still, she's still in the field. She's still under the hot burning sun. As a matter of fact, it's afternoon now. It, it's hotter now than it was when we started. But now her, her fruitfulness has been multiplied. Now there are these handfuls of purpose because she stayed with it, because she didn't quit, because she didn't turn aside, because she didn't get frustrated and go home and discouraged and go back to, to Naomi and say, it's hopeless. Amen. This is too much work. I don't know how we're going to make it. But she stayed in the field and she kept toiling and she kept working and she kept laboring and the Lord provided for her the, the water that she needed to drink, the food that she needed to eat and then began to multiply her harvest. Can I tell you, God's still doing that for people who stay in the field. Amen. He puts handfuls on purpose in your path. When we work in his field, when we labor for him, when we when we do the things that are inconsistent or that are consistent with his will and his purpose and his plan for our lives, he, he causes the work of our hands to be multiplied. Amen. He causes our efforts to be blessed. Uh, when you're faithful in your giving, amen, when you're faithful in your support of the church and all of a sudden the company decides to give an across-the-boards raise, uh, amen, you need to recognize where that comes comes from. Uh, that's God's way of saying, I'm just going to put some handfuls out there. I know that you're staying with it. I know that you are faithful through the hard time. I know that sometimes it was lean, uh, but you were faithful. Uh, and if you just stay with it, I'm going to take care of you. And you're going you're gonna to stumble along in a minute and you're going to trip over a blessing you never expected. Uh, it's going to be there because that's the way God works. Uh, he puts handfuls on purpose in your path. Uh, amen. He puts blessings uh, you weren't expecting. Uh, in the middle of your trial and your trouble. Uh, he puts springs of living water in dry, barren valleys. Uh, amen. He puts these places and times uh, of refreshing and blessing. Uh, and in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the sickness, all of a sudden uh, you find yourself walking uh, in the goodness and the blessings of God and the things that you've been doing faithfully all this time that haven't produced much result, all of a sudden uh, they began to be multiplied uh, and he begins to make them uh, produce more than you ever imagined they could. That's not an accident. There's intentionality to it. There's a plan to it. Just as Boaz commanded his workers to make sure that Ruth has enough. Make sure, you know, you, you sacrifice from my harvest. Make sure she gets her harvest. You, you leave a little migraine on the ground and make sure she gets it. That's the way the Lord has made it his business to watch over you, to protect you, to bless you, to provide for you, 
to keep you. Amen. This morning, if I don't get anything else done in this lesson, I want to remind you that when you see those handfuls of purpose, uh, when you see those blessings of God in your life, you ought to stop and thank Him. You ought to stop and recognize the hand they come from. Amen. Ruth has to look at those harvesters that are leaving that grain for her and recognize, uh, amen, this isn't their doing. Uh, this is the hand of the master. Amen. This is Boaz's doing. Uh, this is the boss has come and said, do it this way. Amen. you got to be able to lift your eyes uh, whenever you find those blessings. Uh, lift your eyes to heaven and Tell him, Lord, I appreciate your goodness. I'm thankful, Lord. Acknowledge what you've done for me. I acknowledge the blessing you poured out in my life. I acknowledge the goodness of God in my life. Boaz goes a step further. He instructs his laborers not to rebuke her, not to get on. Now, we already seen earlier he instructed them not to harass her. But now he tells them not to rebuke her. What's that about? Well, first of all, the gleaners are not normally permitted to work where she's going to work. They're not permitted to be among the sh those that are making the sheaves. Those, those, that, that grain belongs to the farmer. It belongs to Boaz, and she's not supposed to infringe on his property. She's supposed to hang back, and she's supposed to wait. So the first reason they might could rebuke her is for being out of place. But she's out of place because Boaz told her to be out of place. She's where he told her to be doing what he told her to do. There's something important in that. Amen. There's something significant in simply being where God told you to be and doing what God told you to do, no matter what kind of results you're getting, just staying with it and sticking with it and letting God bring about his his perfect will and plan. Amen? But the second and probably the main reason why he tells them not to rebuke her is because of a tradition among the Hebrews, the law of Moses that allows them to glean in the field, also dictates that a gleaner is only permitted to pick up two stalks of grain at a time. And that if a gleaner comes on a, a place where there's three stalks of grain on the ground, the gleaner's only allowed to pick up two. They have to leave the third one. The third one is for another gleaner or for the farmer to come back and get after the gleaners are done. So there's a law that says that she can only pick up two stalks of grain at a time. And, but with this blessing of Boaz, they're leaving handfuls. And Ruth's going to be coming along picking up handfuls and here's the thing Ruth doesn't know the law if nobody tells her you're doing wrong Ruth's never going to know that what she's doing is unconventional and the odds are that if Ruth knew what she was doing was breaking tradition Ruth wouldn't do it and so Boaz says whatever you do don't don't rebuke her don't 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 anybody tell her that the law says she can only get two grains of stock because I'm blessing her and I want her picking up handfuls. I want her getting more than she can have. I want her getting more than she can hold. I want her, I want to laden her down. I, I want to, I want to bless her. I want to give to her out of the abundance of my harvest. Boaz wants her to have the grain. That's why he tells his laborers, whatever you do, don't rebuke her. Amen. And verse 17 says, So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out that that she had gleaned. And it was about an epa of barley. That is nearly a bushel is what that is. And, and when you say a bushel of barley, we're talking about a head like, like is in wheat. 
And we're not talking about a bushel of sheaves. We're talking about a bushel of grain after the grain's been beat out. She, she took the time to glean, and then she beat it out. And what she had left was somewhere around 20 to 25 pounds of grain. Now, that's a very productive day for a laborer in the harvest field, whether they're a gleaner or not. That's a very productive day for someone who is paid labor. It's an especially productive day for a gleaner. There would be enough food there. There would be enough resource there in that one day's labor to feed Ruth and Naomi for a week or more. There's enough there to, to provide for them and take care of them. You see, it really matters what field you labor in. It really matters that you stay in the will and purpose and plan of God for your life. Because Boaz said, stay in my field. But he didn't constrain her. He didn't restrict her. She could have gone anywhere. But because she stayed in his field, she was blessed. Because she stayed in his field, that one day's work multiplies to being four or five days worth of work. When, when you work in harmony with God's plan, when you work in harmony with God's purpose for your life, he takes the little things and he multiplies them. Amen. And when little, my wife is fond of saying here lately, little is much. When God is in it. Amen. That's what happens when you stay in his field. So Ruth started the day picking up one stalk of grain at a time. Here a little and there a little. It was just a, a little here and a little there. But by the end of the day, she's getting grain by whole handfuls. Because when you stay in the Lord's field, he takes care of you. He provides for you. Amen. I, I come to tell somebody in this place on a Sunday morning, I'm quickly coming to a close. Don't give in when it gets down to a little here. And a little there. That's If you don't get anything else from Ruth's long day in the field, and we're going to see miraculous things happen in the life of Ruth, but if you don't get anything else, get this. If she had given up, she would have never got there. If she had stopped, she would have never saw the blessings. If she had before lunch said, you know what, I, uh, you know, I, nobody's paying me to be here. I've got enough maybe to feed me and Naomi for today, and, and it's hot, and I, I think I'll just go on home, and I think I'll just take my ease, and I'll come back out tomorrow. If she'd done that, she'd have missed the meal, and if she missed the meal, she'd missed the handfuls on purpose, and she'd missed the blessing. I come to encourage somebody in this place on a Sunday morning, stay faithful. Stay in the field. Keep doing what you know to do. Keep being where the master told you to be. And keep doing what the master told you to do. Because before it's over with, he turns a little into a lot. Amen. Would you stand with me? Today's lesson, Brother Ryan, if you go ahead and come. Today's lesson revolves around a meal. And I know that it, it probably was more academic than it was instructional but I hope there's somewhere in there there's some things that you glean for your life to touch you but the meal gave Ruth the strength that she needed to go on gleaning when the new meal arrived she she had not yet had her breakthrough she had not yet found handfuls of purpose she was still gathering grain one stalk at a time and she was tired and she was hot and just like the rest of the workers I don't know about you, when noontime comes, I just soon go ahead and throw in the towel and go home. Amen. I, you know, I'm loyal to my work and all that, but if they cut us loose at noon every day, I wouldn't complain. I'd just go meet Brother Sanders at, 
at uh, the, on the border, and we'd have all you can eat fajitas or tacos or enchiladas until we were stuffed, and we'd just go on home and be done for the day. Amen? And that'd be all right. But she stays with it. She keeps pressing. She doesn't give up. She doesn't quit. And that meal, that all you can eat roasted grain, that meal gives her the strength she needs to step into that blessing portion of her day. That, that, that now something changes after lunch. Something changes after that meal. And all of a sudden the fruit of her labor is multiplied. And all of a sudden she steps into her breakthrough. And where she was gathering grain one stalk at a time now, now she's picking it up by handfuls. But she never would have got there if she hadn't taken the time to sit and eat the meal with the master. Had she neglected his invitation, come to my table. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come and be refreshed. She'd have never had the strength to go on. And had she gotten tired and gone home, she would have missed the blessing that the Lord was trying to pour out on her. The meal is critical because it gives you the strength that you need to carry on. It's the strength that comes from that fellowship and communion with the Lord. Let me tell you why you need the Word of God. Let me tell you why you need the bread of life in your life. It gives you the strength to stay in the field. It gives you the strength to keep laboring. It gives you the strength to keep going one stalk of grain at a time until you finally walk into that place that the breakthrough comes and the blessings poured out. But if you don't eat the bread, if you don't partake of the meal, if you deny the master's call when he says, Come, come into my presence. Come and dine. Come and drink. Come and be fulfilled. You'll never have strength enough to get the job done. Amen.